Well, after the last three weeks of speaking on prayer out of Luke chapter 11, we move on to some of the effects of prayer, and they are varied. We come into a portion of Scripture in which Christ is confronted with at least four matters that need our attention. We will not handle all of them this week, and I don't know that we'll handle them more than one a week. But he is confronted with four issues with regard to uh, aspects of theology that even to this day there is seemingly a lot of confusion, which uh, you would think with Christ directly addressing them would not be the case. But in fact, that's exactly what we find. And so as Christ discourses for us on prayer for the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11, he comes and we know that the results of his prayer life was powerful ministry. And we come to chapter 11 verse 14 and we find him engaging in just that, ministry. This is the overflow, if you will, of a productive, vital prayer walk with God is Ministry. And so it should not surprise us that as he gets finished describing for his disciples how to pray, uh, as he finishes describing the promises behind prayer that God offers, that we find him engaging in the end result of prayer, which is ministry. But lest you think that that means that there are no questions or that that ministry is received and understood by those who are not praying, you are in error. The fact is is that when those who have been praying engage themselves in ministry, they will often confront and be confronted by those who will bring doubts upon that ministry. But when we look at their lives, we find it not enveloped in the type of praying and the qualified praying that Christ spoke of in the first 13 verses. And such is the case for Christ himself here in the Gospel of Luke. Before we look into it too far, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our gracious God, we do thank you for the opportunity to look into your word now. And Lord, we pray for settledness here in our environment that would prevent distraction from occurring. We might be able to focus our thoughts, our uh, attentions upon your word of truth. And Lord, that we might do so with a willingness to surrender ourselves to that truth. Lord, it is certain that men know your truth and yet do not believe it. But they haven't humbled themselves to obey it. Lord, help us not be of that number. We might be here ready prepared and desiring to obey your word this morning. We thank you for the depth and extent of your teaching here. We pray you might guard this time from the opinions of men, from the philosophies of this world, that it might be in accordance with your word of truth. And Lord, if necessary, to guard also from the traditions of your church, that we might be pure in our worship this morning, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we have read beginning in verse 14, Christ engages in ministry of casting out a demon. Uh, the indication is that this demon is a very powerful one. 
Uh, and that may surprise you, but it should not. Um, we know that there are hierarchies among the angels, and we should assume the same among the in the demonic world. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm really all four of these. I'd like to handle together, um, but I can't, and so I have to choose one. And I have been very um, indecisive, and that's not very much like me. And most of you know that about which one I want to handle in what order. I know that the casting out of the demon comes first in the narrative, but I really want to handle um, the secondary result of the casting out of the demon before we talk about the teaching on demonology that Christ gives us in this passage. Um, he picks up on it secondarily, and so I'm going to pick up on it secondarily. You might say, well, it's the first thing listed. He casts out a demon, but he doesn't teach about it until we get to verse 24. And so I want to... Uh, Recognize that it occurred, but I don't want to talk about it extensively till we get to verse 24, where he talks about what happens when a demon is cast out, what is the nature of the demonic realm and its interaction with us. And this we'll study next week extensively. Uh, and, uh, not, and, and you pray for me because I always try to avoid that. And you might say, why do you try to avoid that? I, I prefer not to have a Sunday school class on demonology or, or the study of Satan. I prefer not to engage in that in a focused Bible study um, uh, because I think it sets our minds wrong. And I think it is appropriate for it to be studied in the context of other passages that speak of it rightly. And so uh, I always struggle when I have a study on the armor of God that focuses on Satan as though he is all-powerful. And I had to deal with that in a camp setting once. And so we're going to try to avoid that, not because we want to pretend the demonic world doesn't exist, but because we want to keep our thoughts on what is pure, holy, just, true, and a good report, as Philippians indicates. So we will handle it tangentially, just as Christ handled it that way, in his discussion, but we'll do that next week. Uh, but he does cast out this demon, a very powerful demon is the evidence here in the manner that it's spoken of in verse 14. This very powerful demon was, was uh, driven out of this man, cast out of this man. The multitudes marveled at the uh, power of God that, that enabled this one who was mute to speak. And while the multitudes marveled, we find some. And we are not told exactly who this some is, but it's these some that Christ wants to deal with first. And so it's these sums that we're going to focus in on this morning. Some. And we, out of uh, the pattern that we have seen in the Gospels, uh, would assume this some would be the religious leaders of the day. They have consistently been the opposition. Whether it be scribes, teachers of the law, Pharisees, priests, somewhere along the line, Levites. These have been the sum that have been the problem and the, uh, the contentious ones in the multitudes all along. And so we might assume that that be the case here. Uh, it is very feasible. Uh, but it is certain that there were some who are trying to almost uh, turn the crowd, if you will. Here the crowd is seeing Christ exercise authority and power over a very powerful demon. The people are in a state of marvel, of amazement. They are prepared to glorify God 
for his work uh, over this individual's life, particularly in exercising authority over this demon. And in the midst of that, as they are preparing themselves, I believe, to give glory to God, here comes this whisper through the crowd. And you can almost see it just gaining ground throughout the multitude. For this is the way opposition works. It is seldom forthright. How do I know they didn't say this to Jesus? Because the Bible says that he knew their thoughts. They didn't say it to him. They were saying it around. They were whispering it in the ears of the people in the back of the crowd. And the people, and then it started to just create a wave throughout this multitude. Oh, he's doing this. He, he's doing it by the power of Satan. The power of Beelzebub is the power by which he does this. I don't think he's doing this as an agent of God. I think he's doing this as an agent of Satan. Beware. And as this whisper, as this um, contention began to spread throughout the multitude, Christ is going to address it. In the midst of all of this, we have others, and we're going to study them in a couple of weeks, who, because this is the order that Christ took care of it. Um, Christ took care of the whisper of, the, of him doing this in the power of Satan. He then takes care of uh, teaching on demonology. And then thirdly, actually fourthly, there's going to be an insertion of another area of doctrine that needs to be addressed. But fourthly, he's going to take care of what is listed in verse 16, which is they sought a sign from heaven. He's going to pick that up in verse 29 of this chapter. And so we're going to work through these in the order that Christ chooses to address them. These four areas of doctrinal confusion and doctrinal contention that we see sometimes from the religious community. In fact, most often from the religious community. And so we begin here by investigating this idea of the power and authority of God over his created realm particularly within the context of by what power does he accomplish the work that he accomplishes. And so we come to this whisper through the multitude. He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Yes, he's exercising authority over powerful demons, but that's because he's filled with the master demon. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Couldn't you just see this multitude kind of thinking about that? Yeah, that's true. If the ruler of the, the ruler of the demons can order demons around, can't he? Because he's the ruler of the demons. So he can tell a demon to go there and to go there and to go there, right? It kind of makes a little bit of sense. That if he's filled with the ruler of the demons, all the lesser demons are going to listen to him and obey him. You see, contentions within the working of God, within His church, within the gospel, uh, are not totally irrational. And I want you to understand that. When someone is going to come in and try to divide um, a body of saints, they're not going to come in with irrational statements, uh, although if they are studied out thoroughly according to God's Word, we will discover that they are untruths and that they really don't make a lot of sense. But in the early stages, they seem like to human thinking, um, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I could see where that might be the case. 
and suddenly uh, activity that at one point was meant to bring glory to God began to be perverted and instead it was a point of contention, debate, and division. And this happens in Christian communities all the time. I remember being in a ministry where a man was preaching and and uh, there was another in the church and and this man, uh, a godly man, certainly, and there was a man, though, in the church, um, and uh, he kept very close track of all references and cross-references that were used by this pastor. And uh, what would be if the pastor used the same cross-reference multiple times um, in a month? You know, he just... Does he know any other scriptures? He just keeps cross-referencing to this other passage as though he doesn't have a handle on all of God's word. And we find that, okay, perhaps in a thematic or in a even a passage-by-passage, verse-by-verse exposition of God's word, um, you're going to be carrying a theme and it's very easy to cross-reference a passage. But I want you to see the contentiousness of that activity. You do realize how the Great Awakening occurred in this country is through the preaching um, of God's Word um, repetitively. We know, of course, the famous uh, sermon of uh, sinners in the hands of of an angry God. Uh, What we don't often recognize, we think that was a real you know, hellfire brimstone sermon, and certainly in the context it was, but that's not all it was, and it was never delivered in that manner. But it was delivered repetitively, over and over and over again, the same message. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, you will find them delivering the same message over and over and over again. And as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus with the same message over and over and over again. And you know why? Because we're stupid. And we need it over and over and over again before it sinks in. But here's a man in a church who you might listen to and right off you say, yeah, I wonder if our preacher is really studying the Bible sufficiently because he keeps referencing the same references. If you would obey the references, maybe you wouldn't have to refer to them over and over again. i got to tell you, there are some Sundays I get up and I really want to just preach last week's message again. I don't feel like anyone got it. Um, And maybe I should. Maybe I should let the Holy Spirit guide me in that direction. But you see, the contentions that happen within a body of saints where an activity is going on whose intent, whose purpose is to bring glory to God can be undermined by this that to our human reasoning sounds kind of correct. It kind of sounds like I should put a big question mark over what's just happened right here in front of my face, before my very ears. What What is it that this is, and to whose glory is this going? And rather than God being glorified through His work of Christ, these individuals sought to bring contention and division. Oh, He's doing it by the power of Satan. Because Satan is the king of the demons and therefore all the demons have to obey him and that makes perfect sense until you're confronted with the argument and it is a logic argument 
that Christ puts forward. He doesn't get mad and angry. He doesn't stomp and snort at them. He doesn't say, throw up his hands and give up on them. He presents them with a logical, a very forthright argument that demonstrates the foolishness of this contention. That he is casting out demons by the power of the ruler of demons. And so in verse 17, we have his teaching. He, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. He first presents this very basic concept that if you have a nation or even a house in which there's internal divisions that where there's internal fighting, the end result of that, if it is not rectified, is the destruction of that kingdom, is the destruction of that house. That it cannot be sustained, it cannot be occurring, and in fact, everyone knows that if you want to subvert a nation, uh, one of the key ways to do that is to create a division within itself. And we have done that in, in every war uh, that has gone on modern times. We have an entire division of government that's focus is to have just exactly that happen. To create division within the nation that we are at war with. And so we find that uh, Christ understands this fundamental idea and he teaches it to them, something they would agree with. He then applies it to the spiritual realm. In verse 18, if, a, if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? All right, you've said I do this by the power of Satan, by the son of Beelzebub, the, the prince of demons, Beelzebub. You say I'm casting them out. Do you not understand, and we're going to look at this a little bit next week, that we are we are re- removing this de- demonic influence from your midst. Here in the very midst of this demonic activity, we are extracting it. And if Satan, the prince of demons, the ruler of demons, is going around removing demonic influence from your, from your presence, from your uh, locality, then how can his kingdom become stronger? Eventually, it'll collapse. And so there is no logic, ultimately, to what sounds good on the surface. So we first have this logic argument that Christ produces in verse 17, 18. One that they would or should understand. Certainly that is the case. That you do not Fight the enemy by killing your own. You just, it doesn't work. You do not take on a foreign enemy by attacking a group of your own people and creating division at home. Uh, as we engage in every major warfare as a nation, one of the things you will always notice is a unifying national event. Were we prepared to go into World War II? Oh, Pearl Harbor steeled us. We are prepared. 
Were we prepared to deal with what was going on in the terrorist realms? 9-11 steeled us. It, it, it just, it just brought us together for that purpose. And we look over and over again. We find these, the, this nationalizing, the, this unifying of a nation in preparation for a war. Because before you take on a foreign enemy, you want to make sure that you're unified at home. And it's out of that context that we then can take on sometimes a much more powerful enemy if we are unified in that manner. And this is not just in America. This has been a study of warfare going back into ancient times where we see, um, and I, I just... I have to share this because my son's studying this in class, and so I have to grade all of his tests and stuff, quizzes. Um, and, and, and the Greeks, the Greeks didn't get along with each other hardly at all. You had the Athenians who were arrogant. You had the Spartans who were Spartanish. Um, and, and, and you had all of these city-states all over Greece. But once those Persians started coming, boom, here they all are together. And now they're fine, standing right beside each other at Marathon and ready to turn back the Persians. Spartan beside Athenian, beside, 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 I can't remember all their names. Scott can tell you afterwards, though. He passed the test. So he can tell you all those names. And so we have this argument from Christ. Listen, think carefully about what you've just said. It doesn't even make sense. Now, Let's go a step further. We come to verse 19. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? You see, if you make this accusation against me, then those that are engaging in the same activity as I am engaging in must also do it by the same power. And he calls them their sons. That doesn't mean literally it was their children, but it was the Israelites. Here we have a Jewish community, and they have been exposed to people going all about their villages, casting out demons. Do you remember who they were? First, it was 12 guys. That's seven, but there's an imaginary five hand over here. 12 guys went out. Do you remember that? And everywhere they went, they taught the gospel, and they cast out demons, they healed the sick. And then there were 70. Do you remember them? It wasn't so very long ago in our text. I know it's been a long time since I preached on it, but uh, it wasn't so long ago in our text. There were 70 sent out two by two. And what did they do? They went all over the place. And what happened? The demons had to run from them. The sick were healed. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven was preached. And men repented. And he went to every village he was going to visit. They had already had sons of Israel there doing the same work he did when he arrived. Think about that. And so he's in this village, and here's this, the multitude is there, and the whisper is, he's doing this by the power of Satan. And he says, whoa, whoa, you know, not so very long ago, maybe even less than a couple of weeks ago, maybe even less than that, a couple of guys showed up right here, and they did the same work I did. So were they driven by Satan as well? Your sons? People from your own village? 
You see, as soon as experiential, this is an experiential argument, as soon as you attribute that to this, to me, you must attribute it to those who are equally engaged in the same activity that I'm engaged in. You must. How do we use this argument today? I use this argument pretty regularly. Whenever I'm confronted with people who want to give lip service to Jesus Christ, but not obey him. I say, you use this kind of an argumentation? Oh, yes, I do. And in fact, it's a very um, popular one among apologetics, um, which is, has nothing to do with apologizing. Apologetics is defending the faith. One of the things we confront people with is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And uh, they say, oh, well, we believe that he was a very good man um, and that he was a, a, a great example for us to follow. Uh, well, then you believe what he taught. Well, not entirely. Then you believe he was a liar or insane because he taught that he was the Son of God. He taught that he was the only way to heaven. He taught all these things. And so we want to give this lip service that he's a good man, but then um, if someone walked around today and said they were the Son of God and said that they were this and said that they could do this and they would rise again after they were dead and that they would and that we would call them crazy. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that, oh, he was a good man, but he didn't teach the truth. Liars are not good men. Are they? Uh, did you open up the paper today and did you see on the list of qualifications why you should vote for me? I'm a good man. I lie a lot. Did you see any of the politicians write that in their bios in the paper today for lieutenant governor? I'm a really good man. I lie all the time about crazy things, but you should vote for me because I'm a really good guy. Doesn't work, does it? And so experientially, we can look at that and say, no, if he's a good man, then what he taught had to be the truth. And if that is the truth, then he's more than just a good man. He's the Lord. He's the creator of all that exists. He is the master. He is the one who is the deliverer. He is the one who I must obey, the one who I must believe in, the one I must follow. You cannot claim him as a good man, as a great example, and say he's a liar and crazy. And so it is. You cannot say you're the, you're doing this and yet others in our experience, we wouldn't look at them and say, oh, they're doing this by the power of Satan. They don't mix. And so you recognize that your own sons go out there with this power and you recognize that that power is not demonic, but rather from God. And therefore, in your experience, you must recognize the power by which I do this work is the same power by which they did that work. He ends with a little jab that he's going to revisit later on. He's going to visit this really the last, uh, verse 31, 32. He's going to revisit this idea of judgment. He says, they will be your judges, your sons. We sent, I sent out these 70 Two by two. And they exercise the authority of, 
of the Holy Spirit through the laying on my hands. And they, and they went out with that great authority. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. They preached the kingdom of God. Men came to repentance. The power of God was evident. Village after village after village throughout the land of, of Galilee and into Judea. And, and they know by what power they did these things. And here you are creating mischief with this false claim or this false accusation that I'm doing this by the power of Satan. They're going to be the ones that judge you. For they know the truth. And you are rejecting the truth by trying to pervert this work. He then, as Christ does regularly, consistently, moves from direct teaching to teaching by story or example regarding the authority of Christ. Verse 21, When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. When a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Powerful statement. Saying, listen, you know, this is Satan's realm. And he has great power here, and let's not underestimate that power. And he may think that he has uh, some level of safety here. Um, and, and any great prince would think that if he has a very powerful uh, place with high walls and, and a great army and, and powerful weapons. Oh, he thinks he's secure until he's confronted with an overwhelming force. And then what? Everything he was trusting in is taken away. Everything. And Christ here is prophetically describing the power of his work. He is not here to put a dent into the kingdom of Satan. He has come to destroy it. He has come to rip it apart and make it a spoil. He is there to take away all the power of Satan. And that's what's implied here in this idea. He takes from him all his armor in which he trusted. There will be no power. Does Satan have power? Yes. Did he have more power prior to this time? Yes, I would contend he did. And is he a weakened enemy of of the people of God today? By far. But he is still an enemy. His armor has been taken away and God is making spoil of his realm, taking it for his own possession. And when each every sinner becomes a saint through the repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and the working of Christ in their life to, to uh, sanctify them, to justify them, to glorify them, it is God taking spoil from the kingdom of Satan. Ultimately, this will transpire in his coming of his kingdom. And then at the end of the millennium, at the battle of Gog Magog, the final destruction of this kingdom. But I want you to understand what Christ is powerfully teaching here. Yes, Satan's a strong man. Yes, he had a great army. Oh, he had guards, he had a powerful palace, and he thought he had a realm where he could rule. 
But there are three words here I want to look at. Verse 22. A stronger than he. Stronger than he. A man walked on earth 2,000 years ago that was stronger than he. The he there is Satan. One is in your midst who is stronger than him. And is going to overcome him. Christ had come upon Satan, had come upon that realm, had come upon him time and time again, and was overcoming him time and time again, and destroying it, laying spoil to it. And he says, a stronger than he is here. And this Jesus is going to revisit at the end of this uh, teaching text that we, we, we're put together here in verses 14 through 32. Um, this idea of a stronger than here is going to be lifted up in a positive way at the end of this portion, verse 31, 32, that a greater than, a greater than Solomon is here, a greater than Jonah is here, and a stronger than Satan is here, is how he introduces it here in this passage. A stronger than Satan is here. This is the authority by which Satan's realm is in the process of being overcome. It is in the process of being attacked. It is in the process of his armor being destroyed. It is in the process of dividing all that he claims is his own. Because a stronger than he is here. And so we have this threefold report or retort by God, by Jesus Christ, toward this horrible, God-glory-robbing assertion that Jesus was doing the work of God in the power of Satan. And brethren, um, in other texts, in, in the Gospels, Jesus Christ is reported to even more strongly assert how dangerous this is. Even calling this the unforgivable sin. Because, you see, the attack wasn't on Jesus here, but on the power by which Jesus worked. The authority by which Jesus did this. That was the assault. You see, they didn't assault Jesus himself, but by what authority or what power does he do this work? How does he do this? By whom does he do this? And Jesus, in, in, in the corollary passages, um, in the other Gospels, talks about by what power he does it. He does it by the power, not of his own personage, but of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when you say that I'm doing this by Satan, when I'm actually doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, what are you doing? You are blaspheming the Spirit. And a lot of things, in fact, from what I can tell in Scripture and from the statement of Christ Himself, all the things will be forgiven men, but this stands. This kind of blasphemy, that when God does a work, you say, glory to Satan. And God's working today, whether it be in our church, in your life, in this world, is still by that same person, Holy Spirit. 
And when we take that work and attribute it to Satan, God says, you'll be held accountable for that. And so we walk carefully in this realm. This threefold instruction by Christ denouncing this horrible contention. The work of God can be done by the power of Satan. We need to share. We need to listen carefully. We had a little discussion, in fact, among ourselves, and when you hear Pastor Reddy speak, you hear him talk about things, and, and if you've read extensively about what's going on in the Muslim world um, over the past uh, 12 years or so, and uh, well, really 20 years, and, and I think we, we are, we're so filled with information from the world's perspective, we don't hear about what's going on in Christendom and spiritually in these places. But the fact is the Muslims are coming to Christ in larger numbers than ever this day and age. These 10, 15, 20 years. They're coming to Christ. And we hear Pastor Ray talk about Hindus and, and Muslims coming to Christ in India. And, and uh, we met that one pastor in Hyderabad who he came out of, of Hinduism and she came out of, of, of uh, Islam. And there they are as a couple serving as pastor and wife of the church. Powerful testimony. But what you'll hear in many of their testimonies is things that sound supernatural. And it bugs us. You know why? Because we're more like the whispers in this passage than not. You see, in our theological circles, we have done some damage to the Holy Spirit. And for this, we must be sorrowful and careful. And so we try to very carefully teach in our doctrinal statement um, what some in our movement think is too weak, and yet it is hopefully balanced. And uh, some people think it's too strong, some people think it's too weak, and that's always a good thing, I think, because then you're probably pretty close to where you should be. Um, but we make a statement that the Scriptures are completed and the Holy Spirit's work of, of revelation is done. That is, of communicating truth to be added to scriptures. That is of, of revealing um, uh, God's word. That is completed. That there are no longer any revelatory work in terms of, of, a, of for all the people of God to know. And so you will not hear me stand up here and say, the Holy Spirit spoke to me last night in this dream to tell you and the church, capital C, this truth. Or even just you. That the public nature of revelation is completed with our scriptures. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is without power in this age. And when I hear these testimonies of God working 
powerfully in these people's lives. And, and it's phenomenal to hear their testimony of having dreams of Jesus, of having visions of Jesus, and, and, and dreams of, and, and it's phenomenal to hear what they say because it's not Jesus appearing to them like Saul on the road to Damascus, um, but rather it is, it is to get their attention. And you know what they're most often hear Jesus tell them in their dreams? Go find a Christian and listen to them. Go get a Bible and read it. Isn't that great? I love hearing those testimonies. You see, these people are in a Bible famine place. It's just not readily available to them. And when God's written revelation is not readily available, do you think God is powerless to give people the gospel? Oh no. He is not. And so when I hear these, and this is, this is out of China and other places, you'll hear this testimony. And I say, well, why don't we have that here today? Because we are not in a Bible famine place. There are Bibles everywhere. You turn on the radio. Go through the AM radio dials on Saturday and see how many messages, how many Christian stations you can pick up. It's incredible. You can go to Walmart and pick yourself up a Bible for what? Three bucks? Maybe less? I don't know. You can go into a motel room and there's one by your bedside. We are a Bible inundated place. But where they are starved for Scripture, I don't deny that the Holy Spirit will intervene to direct them. These are individuals who are already searching. They wanted to know the truth. They had already been exposed to a little bit of Christianity through a Christian businessman, through a missionary, through an acquaintance, through a fellow student, and they had some exposure. And 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 but they were struggling in their heart. And then God intervened and said, "Listen, you want to know the truth? You need to read this. You need to listen to this." And you hear those testimonies, and I. Don't doubt it. I hope you don't. For this is the power of our Holy Spirit in this age. Because one stronger than Satan has come. And by this power of Holy Spirit, we should be overcomers as well. So we come down to a specific application passage, verse 23. These three arguments regarding the authority by which we do the work of God is culminated in this. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. This should sound a little familiar to you. Because not so very long ago, Christ had something interesting to say to his disciples who wanted to kill a whole bunch of Samaritans for rejecting Christ. you remember that? And Christ had a little statement that says, do you not understand? And, he, and there's some question about, and he actually says this kind of thing in the opposite. He says, he who is not against me is for me. Now he's saying he who is not for me is against me. He switched it around. And he's given us a great balance here between the two statements. You see, you could take that first statement and say, well, I'm not against you doing this, so I must be for Christ. 
Well, we have many in our culture that aren't against us meeting as a church. They just don't want to do it with us. Are they for Christ? Well, if we only had that statement, we might contend that. But we have this balanced statement on the other side that there is a matter personally that if you are not for Christ, that you cannot claim any of the benefits or the power of the Holy Spirit by which he did his work. If you are not for me, you are against me. If you are not reaping in my name, you are scattering. There is no neutral territory here in God's kingdom. There is no neutral place where you can be so-so and, well, it's okay, you believe what you want to believe, um, just leave me alone. That, that is not new, there is no neutrality in the kingdom of heaven. There's no neutrality in our minds about this world. There are those who are for Christ and there are those who are against Him. And let us perfectly understand that. That that friend of yours, that co-worker of yours, that neighbor of yours, that relative of yours, that you describe as a good person who is not for Christ is of the kingdom of Satan. Oh, but they, you know, they're good and they, they coach Little League and they volunteer at the nursing home and they um, stop at all stoplights and obey the speed limit all the time and they work hard and they provide for their family. Um, going to hell. Child of Satan. See, Christ sets up a great dichotomy in this world. There are two. There are those who are for him and those who are against him. There are those who are doing his work and those who are doing the opposite of his work and there is no in between. There is no neutral territory here. There is no middle ground. And who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to the whispers. Saying there is no neutral ground here. You can't sit out there and say, well, I'm not going either way on this one. Oh, no, 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 no. You must decide. For that decision drives the power of your ministry. For God calls us to be sowers, to be ingatherers, to be those who would, who would do the work of the kingdom of, of heaven. And so we must be with Him and gather for His name, and if we are not, then we are scatters and we are against Him. And so these who began this whispering in the crowd, they were the ones doing the work of Satan. They were the ones who were trying to bring discord within the kingdom of God. They were the ones who were guilty of the very things they were accusing Christ of. And Christ makes it very clear that there will be a judgment for them. For they heard his truth. They saw his power. And rather than praising him, they blasphemed the one by whom he did all this, Holy Spirit. 
And so we are called upon today to have a right view of the working of the Holy Spirit. That we recognize His power and the authority by which He works. That when I stand up here on Sunday mornings and pray, Lord, I pray Your Spirit might have control this time. This is not just an exercise in, in religious form, but this is a, a earnest plea that what is done here with this Scripture is done not in the power of a man, but in the power of a God. The God. Holy Spirit. That we could take His Word and by Holy Spirit understand it. That He might turn the light on in our minds shining His light upon it, that we might see it reflected and then brought into our very life, that when we pray, Oh Lord, You convict, we recognize that's not my job is to bring conviction upon You. Sometimes I'd like to, but I would be really bad at it. But He is perfect at it. And so this is our prayer. And we do not underestimate, nor do we misinterpret the working of the Holy Spirit, but we glory in it and we give glory to God. And it is not just unfortunate. It is an evil. In our Christian communities, if we are uncomfortable talking about the power of God, as though He could still, can He still do these things? From what I can tell in Scripture, the limiting force upon the power of the Holy Spirit is your faith. Your faith. Can he be resisted? Yes. Can he be grieved? Yes. Your sin. Faithlessness is the ultimate sin, I think, for the believer. And so we are called upon to walk with him, to obey him, to um, be consoled by him, to be directed by Him, to be illuminated by Him, to be filled by Him. And we are called upon Him, and yet we feel uncomfortable when someone walks into our midst and says, the Holy Spirit did this in my life, and we go, oh, that's weird. Why? Because you've never experienced it? Perhaps it's weird that we haven't. Now, am I proposing that we walk out of here speaking in tongues and roll our way out? No. These are revelatory gifts, specifically granted in Scripture to one group of people for a very important purpose that has been accomplished. We are told that though they cease, there is other work of the Holy Spirit that sustained. And oh, that we would glory in that. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's work is to bring glory to His kingdom. We dare not find ourselves whispering in the crowd, it's Satan. We must be fully for God, or we are against Him. We must be fully for Christ and about His work, or we are against Him. We are either gathering in his name or we are scattering in the name of Beelzebub. This is certain. And so we are given some instruction, some education, but we are also given a calling. 
that we recognize and give glory to God for His working with power and great might in our midst. That we seek it not to our own glory, but neither do we decry it, for that would be to our shame. So we recognize it and we glorify God for it. And we rejoice that He can turn plants that are dying into plants that are producing in a field in India so a high caste lady would come to know Christ. I believe God can do that. I can believe that God can take a struggling, questioning, wondering young man who is ill and make him well, that he may be able to discern truth from error and come to know Christ. That a man in a dark country who has only heard a little glimmer of the truth from a businessman can be given a vision to search out a Christian in a Bible that he might be saved. These things I believe God can, will, and does do to his glory. I want you to see the conditions of all of these events That is that they were not God indiscriminately revealing himself or showing himself and and inviting people to salvation that some might get saved and some wouldn't. But these were those who had already been confronted with some truth and were struggling and considering it and, and, and weighing it and yet in a place of emptiness and, and darkness and God brought some light there. Oh, that we would glorify God for his work those environments. And so we are called upon to be fully for Christ and for the gathering in for his kingdom, lest we be among the whispers in the crowd. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your working in this world. And Lord, we pray regularly for those in lands where your word is forbidden by law. And yet we hear, sometimes too quietly, we hear that even in those places your light shines and men are coming to know Christ. And for this we glorify your name. And I pray, Lord, for Filipino servants in Saudi homes who are lights in dark places, that your spirit might go before them, with them and in them, share Christ in palaces that once belonged to Satan. Lord, crumble his kingdom for you are stronger. And Lord, we would rejoice to be counted worthy of participating in that activity of gathering in sharing Christ with those in our environment. Lord, we have around us in this land those who have never heard your word, who have never been given one verse of Scripture or one invitation to church.
Lord, I pray that your spirit might come upon us this week. That we might be emboldened to do your work. That your name might be glorified in our midst through great and mighty works beyond our understanding, but within, easily within your Spirit's power. Praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.